Numbers chapter 5 was dealing a lot, we saw, with relationships uh, with other people. It uh, addressed some different aspects of that. Chapter 6 is really just a very clear emphasis in regards to not the horizontal, but our relationship on the vertical, our relationship uh, between us and God. And it speaks to something that God set before the children of Israel, the Jews, as an opportunity for them to really just sort of dedicate or consecrate their life over to God. If they were longing for a deeper measure of intimacy with the Lord and their relationship, uh, God set this provision into the law for them where they could make this vow uh, to do such. Look with me, if you would, there in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Notice, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman, so again, notice this was something that Anyone, man, woman, boy, girl, young or old, this was something that was available to all. Uh, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. So again, notice we have this reference here, Numbers chapter 6, to what is called the vow of a Nazarite. Now be careful here. Don't mistake that. This is not the vow of a Nazarene. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus was a Nazarene, and that's because Jesus was from the area of Nazareth. But a Nazarene and the vow of a Nazarite are two completely different things. So uh, don't take them as one and the same. This is something that God prescribed in the law and gave to the children of Israel as a way for them if they felt led in a voluntary or willing way they could make this vow of dedication of themselves unto the Lord the word Nazarite there the, the root word Nazar literally just means to separate or to dedicate so uh, again keep in mind the opportunity to serve as a Levite where your life was fully given over to the Lord. Remember, we've been looking at that in prior studies. Uh, those of the tribe of Levi, they were sovereignly set aside by God and, and they had a unique privilege to serve in the service of the house of God to handle the things of the tabernacle and then from the tribe of Levi you then had the family line of Aaron and his sons and they had the unique role of serving as priests and uh, handling the holy things and putting the incense on the altar of incense and attending uh, to the sacrifices that the people would bring as worshipers and of course the high priest once a year having that high privilege of going in with the blood of atonement there on the day of atonement to go into uh, the holy of holies to be in the presence of God and they had this unique special opportunity to live in intimacy with the Lord to minister to the Lord and certainly as all worshipers potentially may think on occasion well well gosh I, I, I want to have a deeper intimacy with the Lord I, I wish and long that I could have an experience maybe of greater consecration to give myself more fully the Lord in such a way well, well keep in mind uh, with God, our relationship with him is always in many ways dependent upon what we want in a relationship with him. Uh, God will take us as deep and as far and as close and as intimate in our relationship with him that we desire to go. And certainly all the more is that true from a New Testament perspective for you and I today as Christians because Jesus Christ has made such perfect uh, atonement through his blood and sacrifice and death and resurrection that the Bible says that we can come boldly 
to the throne of grace, that we can come confidently right into the presence of God, something that the Jews keep in mind would be astonished. They would be flabbergasted by the idea that someone could come directly into the presence of God and have such intimacy with him as the result of that. James says to us that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So that reminds me of something constantly in my life the level of intimacy and closeness that I have in my relationship with the Lord, that really in many ways is directly dependent upon me. I can have as close of a relationship with God as I want to have with God. Tonight, your level of closeness, your intimacy with the Lord is exactly how close and how intimate you want to be with the Lord. And the opportunity for that to go deeper and further is something that is freely available to you and freely available to me. And God does not you know, put restraints. He doesn't put boundaries on. And see, this is somewhat foreign to us because in human relationships, we do that. You know, People put their guard up and they set up boundaries and, and we, we, we let certain people have certain levels of access and intimacy to us. And sometimes I think that we almost perceive that that's what God's like, that you know, God allows a certain level of intimacy or then maybe he only allows certain people to be in his inner circle like people have inner circles maybe of those who they're more close to for certain reasons and sometimes we think that that's the way that God operates that's not true the Bible says deep calls unto deep and the Lord is the one initiating to us David says in Psalm 27 that the Lord said to me seek my face And he said, my heart said, Lord, your face I will seek. So God is always calling to us, making himself available to us and gives the opportunity for us to live as close and intimate as we want. And here he now creates this opportunity where there was a willing or voluntary vow we see here described in verse two that one of the children of Israel could make, whether you were a man or a woman, again, didn't matter. It was a voluntary offering. This was a voluntary vow or dedication. It wasn't required. It wasn't mandated. This was something of your own free will that for a determined or set amount of time, you could enter into what was called the vow of a Nazarite, whereby basically you were dedicating yourself unto the Lord for his purposes. And uh, the idea is that you just wanted to be set apart to the Lord in a special way. This was an act of devotion unto the Lord. You see what it says there, to separate himself to the Lord. So this was a, a way as an act of devotion where you could come before God and you could determine, God, I want to take a vow of the Nazarite. I want to just be separated unto you. Uh, the Mishnah and certain documents say that typically it was about a 30-day time period, but it could be for longer than that. Uh, we have those even in the Old Testament, those like Samson and Samuel. Uh, A question if maybe in the New Testament we see this of John the Baptist's life. Some, it seems, lived almost lifelong commitments in this capacity. But typically it was for a set time where you could just say, you know, I I just desire deeper intimacy with God. I want to make myself fully available to him, my life consecrated over for his purposes to a greater degree. And if that was your heart, you could enter into this voluntary vow of the Nazarite to separate yourself unto the Lord. But notice, if you wanted to do that, 
There were some requirements then or restrictions you would then embrace, we read in the next verses, in order to experience this vow or this commitment if you wanted to enter into that commitment to the Lord. They were, verse 3, first of all, that if you entered into the vow of a Nazarite to separate yourself to the Lord, first of all, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall neither drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat any fresh grapes or raisins, which are basically dried out grapes in a sense. Verse 4, all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Secondly, verse 5, all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. So his hair was just to be left to grow until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy and he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. And then thirdly, verse six, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. The idea is not to have any contact with a corpse or with death. He shall not make himself unclean, even notice for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die because of his separation to God, which is on his head, and all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. So hopefully you, you pick up there that repeated word for emphasis, separation, separation, separation. I think it's some 15, 16 times we find a reference to this because this is the concept, the, the heart and the idea behind this is, is Lord, I, I just want to be separated from the world, from everything else. I want to be separated from these things so that I can be separated and, and attached to you and experience a deeper intimacy with you. And notice three restrictions were necessary if you wanted to take on this vow of the Nazarite. It involved all three of them involved forms of abstinence in a sense. Things that you were willing for the set time of your Nazarite vow to abstain from things that you, in a sense, you gave up certain liberties. Again, none of these things in and of themselves, you know, that which comes from the fruit of the vine, your hair growing a certain length or being cut, having contact with somebody or a relative to help in the burial process, to embalm them or, you know, to, to help, uh, in a sense, in a respectful way, bury them after they have passed on and died. None of these things in and of themselves are sinful. Uh, these are, in many ways, everyday activities that Jews would participate in. They were liberties that they were allowed to be a part of. But in order to enter into the vow of the Nazarite, you would abstain from these liberties for that set period of time in order to be able to pursue deeper intimacy with God. The three things we find is, first of all, there in verse 3 and 4, is that you had to abstain from any form of wine and notice anything that had to do really in essence with anything that came from the vineyard. You couldn't drink vinegar made from wine or similar drink. Uh, you couldn't have grape juice. You couldn't touch grapes or raisins. You couldn't even, it says verse 4, touch anything produced by the grapevine from seed 
to skin. So again, God knowing our uh, potential, if we touch one thing to want to take the next thing, God just says complete abstinence. You can't just have a little because God knows our tendency that if we have a little bit of something, it just causes us to crave and to yearn and to long for more. So God says complete abstinence. Do not touch or partake of anything that comes from the vine or the vineyard. And, And in some ways I see the idea here is God is calling his people, if they were to enter into this vow, to sort of abstain, you could say, from certain forms of luxury, certain forms of enjoyment, to be able to partake of, of grapes or raisins or to, to drink wine together with me. I mean, these, these were forms of luxury. These were forms of enjoyment. They were a form of pleasure that uh, the Jews would indulge. And so here God asked for them to abstain from a form of luxury and enjoyment from their life, to just abstain from that for a season of time that they might be separated unto him. Secondly, they also, notice verse 5, were not in any way during that time to cut their hair during the time of their vow of separation. They were to let their hair grow. Uh, The locks of their hair were just uh, to be let grown. They weren't to in any way sort of keep or tend or shave themselves in any way. Uh, And here I think the idea is God, in a sense, asking them to abstain perhaps from human approval. Uh, Keep in mind, long hair is not always necessarily uh, a socially acceptable thing. I mean, we've gone through seasons in our our American culture where sometimes, you know, uh, long hair was in, you know, if you're your twisted sister or kiss or some of these, there were times when long hair was the thing that was the socially cool thing. But uh, again, keep in mind, that's not always been the socially acceptable thing. And here, again, is there anything inherently good or bad about hair, this or that? Well, uh, certainly not. But it seems to be the idea, if you think about it, that perhaps this has to deal with God speaking to them about having the acceptance or the approval of other people think about it Uh, your head right is the most prominent thing in your body it's the thing that sticks out of your collar that you don't cover typically uh, unless you're wearing a thing that's most often exposed and most people spend the most time taking care of and making sure that they look acceptable from here up Right, we we spend a lot of money on our hair. We spend a lot of time on our hair. We you know we color it, we style it, we add it back in if it falls out. I mean, we we do all kinds of stuff. Or you know our faces, we we take care of them, we wash them, we shave them, we paint them, we even inject stuff in them to bring back the form if it's starting to deteriorate. We we put a lot of time and attention into our head to the to that which is from our shoulders up because we why because we one reason we want people's approval because we don't want people to look at us and go, Ooh, you know so it's all about approval it's all about acceptance because if we didn't care about approval or acceptance we would just get up in the morning with rhino breath and messed up hair and you know mascara running down our face and we just take on another day right who cares? I, I'm, all my clothes match, right? Who cares what the rest of me looks like from here up? It's all about approval. It's all about acceptance. And you can guarantee if you just let your hair grow and you put no razor to it and you let facial hair and the hair grow, that was, it was very obvious to people. The idea seems to just sort of leave yourself unkept. It almost seems like God's saying, just go el natural. For, for the time of your separation in such a way where people would know and notice... You're under a vow right now. 
It was very identifiable. People would recognize that you were, because of that uh, sort of abstaining from cutting the hair, that focal point would be very obvious to people. And the idea here, in many ways, is I think the worshiper saying, look, I, I care about what God thinks. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. And for a season of time so that I can seek God and I can serve God and I can live consecrated and dedicated to God, you know what? I'm willing to put aside what everybody else thinks about me because I care about what God thinks about me more than anything right now. And so let people think that I'm different. Maybe I won't have the acceptance of others and I'm willing to be dishonored or not have the acceptance of people if that means that I can honor the Lord. And I can have the Lord's acceptance because that's what my primary focus is, not having the acceptance of people or needing the approval of others, but just wanting to have God's approval and to seek God's approval as I live a time of separation just fully dedicated unto him. The third thing, notice there was to be abstinence from for the Jews there in verse 6, if they took on this vow of the Nazarite, is all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. Notice he could not go near or have contact with, we see here, a dead body, a corpse. Now certainly part of that probably was, again, hygienic, we know, of course, if they touched a dead body, that would render a person ceremonially unclean. So they were not to have any contact during the time of the vow of the Nazarite whatsoever with a dead body. Now, they could be ceremonially unclean for a day or two and then go back as a worshiper. But here, God says for the entire time, for the 30 days or the three months or the three years, whatever your vow is going to be of separation unto God, they could not have physical contact with the dead. Look, verse 7, talk about difficult. God says he shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother or for his brother or sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head and all the days of his separation he shall be holy that is completely given over to the Lord. So uh, again, imagine how difficult that would be. And here I see the idea perhaps being is God asking them to abstain for this time from certain ordinary rights and privileges. I mean, certainly anyone should have the entitlement and the right to bury their own father, to embrace their own mother when their mother has just passed, to, to, to just touch one final time the, the shell of what's left of a life that had raised them and nursed them and was so intimately connected to their life as that loss happens, or, or a brother or a sister, the most intimate of a relationship, the deepest of affections, and God says, but no, but, but you have to refrain from that. Now, that would be really hard. Would you agree? I mean, could you imagine that? Can you imagine having to refrain because you've made this dedication to God and therefore it involves forsaking certain ordinary rights and privileges that other people are participating in and really that you would love to? And the idea is so that they could stay undefiled and be fully available to the Lord. God says, because their separation is unto me, it's necessary that they not become defiled so that they can be fully available to be useful and to be seeking me and spending time in intimacy with him. Now, again, as you look at these three things here, these were things, again, keep in mind, it was voluntary. You did not have to do this. 
Okay, so we don't want to look at this and think this makes somebody necessarily more spiritual or makes them more holy or somehow is what makes a person right with God. And we're saved by work, not by works, but by grace. So again, this was a voluntary vow that a person could enter into if they longed for deeper intimacy with God, they would willingly enter into this and separate themselves unto the Lord. And here's the thing that we have to remember. It was their devotion and separation to the Lord that was what gave them the drive to separate themselves from these other things. Uh, again, separation is a twofold thing. It's separation from something and separation to something. Again, if we think of it in this way, again, and you notice there's that continual inference here throughout the thing, the mark of separation to God, verse 7 is on it. Again, it's separation, not just from these things. A lot of times that's the error of that. Oh, are you kidding me? I have to give up what? I have to separate from this and forsake that and let go of this. But, but see, from God's perspective, he sees it as separation to him. And in order to be separated to him, they had to be willing to then separate from some other things. But it was the separation to the Lord that motivated them to be willing to then separate from those other things. It's the same way how when, when people fall in love. Okay, when, when, when I fell in love with my wife and got all twitter pated and and she became my everything and i was separated and it was twitter pated that's a real word i, I promise you it was, was happening to me but when i when i experienced that nobody had to tell me nobody has to be, look it probably wouldn't be wise to flirt with other girls now it probably wouldn't be wise. To, nobody had to tell me to separate myself from certain things it was my separation to her that automatically made me just start separating myself from other things. I mean, I was even separating myself from my friends. You know, who, what were my friends' names? Who were they? I mean, all the things, you know, I used to go to the gym, you know, five times a week. Forget about it. You can tell the results. Look at me now. You know, <laughs> love messes you up, man. Uh, you know, but all the things that, again, just you tend to naturally, and it, and it wasn't a labor. She wasn't saying, look, if you want to be separated to me, then you're going to have to let go of the gym because I want your attention five days. It wasn't that. It was my separation to her, my devotion to her that drove me to be very willing to say, you know what? I'll let go of those things. Those things are nothing in comparison to being closer to her, to have an intimacy with her, to have a deeper level to a greater degree of relationship with her. And see, this is the idea. As someone wanted to make this consecration of their life unto God, God gave them an opportunity to demonstrate that because when you did these things, it would make you a little different in the culture. People would know it was a mark of separation. They could see that your life was dedicated unto God. Now, again, for us, certainly we are not under the law as Israel was, we're under grace in Jesus Christ. But I look at this and I think, man, still, what, what, what a wonderful thing. Not that I think we need to take the vow of a Nazarite and abstain from these kind of things in the way in which they did as if it would have some meaning. But I still look at it and I think, what a wonderful thing to have a desire voluntarily to want to be more dedicated to the Lord than you already are. What a wonderful thing. Again, it's not required of you. It's not mandated of me. You're saved by grace. It's a gift. 
You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. I don't have to work for it. I can't work for it or earn it. I can't say, well, God, I'm going to give up this and give up that. And won't that give me a higher, a higher place or ranking in heaven? No, absolutely not. It will do nothing. Salvation's a gift. Our holiness, our righteousness, our forgiveness, it is freely given to us as a gift of grace. But see, grace should be a way higher motivator even than the law is. And in the same way, how wonderful for us as a child of God, forgiven, experiencing the Holy Spirit, experiencing the love of God to say, Lord, Lord, I know I don't have to, but Lord, I, I want to live more dedicated to you. Lord, I, I want to experience a greater degree of intimacy. I, it's wonderful what I have, but Lord, I want to go deeper. Or, or Lord, I want to dedicate this season of my life unto you. Lord, I know I could be doing this in this season of my life, but you know what, Lord? I want to dedicate this season to you. Lord, these next 30 days, I just, uh, maybe I want to refrain from some of these liberties, some of these things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but Lord, I, I want to give up some things so that I can give a little more time to you. Or Lord, I want to be willing to maybe give up this opportunity so that I can pursue you instead. And see, sometimes for you and me, uh, I find that our desire to pursue dedication to the Lord or intimacy to the Lord may involve, just like here with the vow of the Nazareth, it may involve maybe willingly, and I emphasize willingly, forsaking some liberties, forsaking some things that aren't in and of themselves wrong, but that we realize I need to be willing to forsake this or forsake those few things so that I can follow after a closer relationship with the Lord. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing. This reminds me of uh, what Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, where Paul there, again, understanding the message of grace, Paul says this. Consider this as a Christian. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. The word lawful means it's not a violation. So Paul says, under grace, all things are lawful for me. But then he says this, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. See, Paul's saying this. There are a lot of liberties in the Christian life. There are a lot of freedoms in the Christian life. Let's take one of them point blank that's right here, alcohol. There's a freedom in the Christian life to the Christian. The Bible does not say it is prohibited that you cannot drink alcohol. The Bible clearly teaches that drunkenness is a sin. The Bible clearly speaks of alcohol typically in a negative manner when it does because when someone becomes intoxicated, a lot of unhealthy things tend to happen as a result of that. But, but again, there's a liberty there. But it's a liberty that you can choose to forsake if you desire to. It's a liberty where you can say, you know what? It's lawful for me, you know, as, as a Christian, you may say, if I'm out to dinner with my wife or I'm in my home and, and I want to have a, you know, a glass of wine as, as a Christian and you're 21 years old and, and you have the money and that's what you want to spend it on, you're free to do that. But you may also say, though I have the freedom to do this, is this really helpful for me? Is this going to help me in my relationship with God? Is this going to be helpful to me, especially if I have a tendency towards substance abuse or I have a tendency toward then, as Paul says, it's lawful, but I don't want to be brought under the power of anything where all of a sudden I indulge a liberty and all of a sudden I begin to realize uh, this which was a freedom is now becoming a master over me and now it's controlling me. 
And see, there are many different things in our spiritual lives where if we want deeper intimacy with God and we want to live a more dedicated life unto God or maybe for a season of our life we want to set apart in some way to serve God to a a greater degree, we may be willing to have to in a similar way say, you know what, there are certain luxuries, certain forms of enjoyment, they're not wrong, but but I'm just going to forsake them for a time. I'm going to give up watching the TV for a time. Nothing wrong with watching TV, but, but I need to spend a little more time reading my Bible and praying. Or, you know, I, I, maybe I need to be willing to let go a little more, being so concerned that if I take this course or pursue this ministry or go this path, what are people going to think of me? And, and people are going to think I'm a little radical. And, well, that, that's pretty irresponsible. I mean, you should be doing this. This is what everybody in America does at this stage of life and this age of life. And you're going to give all that up to, to go serve God? What are you irresponsible and and that pressure is do you want the approval of people or do you want the approval of god and see there come these times where when we want to dedicate or make a commitment to the lord i think it's a beautiful thing and many ways we can experience some of the same it reminds me of what we just studied recently in romans chapter 12 where paul says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, following its ways, getting its approval, indulging everything that it has to indulge because that's what everybody in the world should indulge because you're entitled to that. And, And maybe you are. But he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Let the Spirit of God be transforming you from the inside out. Let the renewing of your mind happen so that you might test and approve what is that good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And how I think of that and how it corresponds so beautifully with this Nazarite vow that could be made. So all the days, verse 8, of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And notice verse 9, if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, so an accidental death happens. Again, remember, this would cause defilement. So if anyone dies suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. He shall sanctify his head on the same day. And he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So he describes here a scenario. Again, I love how God always puts in provisions of grace. God puts in here a provision of grace to the person who was living under a Nazarite vow, a gracious provision, if they became accidentally defiled, inadvertently defiled. They didn't intend on it happening, but some circumstances just unfolded and they accidentally came into contact with the corpse and God says, if that happens, all is not lost. He makes a provision here and he says, and, and, and you can start over again. They had to bring a certain offering notice. The former days, verse 12, of his separation shall be lost because he was defiled. So, but there was an opportunity where all wasn't lost. God said, I'll make a provision. You can make atonement as you bring an offering to the priest and you could begin that vow again. You could start over again. 
And, and I think this is such a wonderful thing because it's a reminder that, you know, even in all of our lives spiritually, you know, sometimes we start seeking the Lord or pursuing the Lord. And, and guess what? Are we ever going to bat 100%? Absolutely not. Is God ever expecting perfection? I sure hope not because he knows nobody's ever going to deliver. And so here God makes this provision because he understands the weakness of flesh and humanity. If they accidentally became defiled, they could bring offerings to the priest. He would make atonement. Interesting, notice verse 11. It says there, the priest shall offer a sin offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regards to the corpse. Now, wait a minute. Did, did he purposely, consciously sin? No. But this is a good reminder that even when we don't do something purposely, willingly, consciously, in other words, we say, look, I didn't sin intentionally. It just kind of happened unintentionally. Listen, well, intentional and unintentional sin, sin is sin from God's perspective. And all needs to be atoned for. But here God makes this provision so that they could start over again. And it's great encouragement to us that even when we falter and fail, listen, all's not lost. God's in to give an opportunity to start and over again. And certainly because of the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, that's the greatest offering. There's way more opportunity to just confess our sin and to begin again. One man has said before, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that's so often is true. First John says, if anyone sins, let him confess his sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, there you go, begin again. Keep pursuing me. Keep walking with me. Now, verse 13, notice, if that did not happen, but you came to the closure then of that vow, this is how you would come to the culmination of the end of that vow. Verse 13 describes what would take place. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled. So you come to the end of your 30-day vow or three-month vow or three-year vow. At the end of the days of your separation, once they're fulfilled, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall present his offering to the Lord. And look at this list. One male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering. That was the offering of consecration, remember? One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering. One ram without blemish as a peace offering. So these are all the, the best of their flocks. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offering. So uh, that was a pretty costly amount of things that they were to bring then to the priest and bring to the tabernacle at the time as they came to the closure the end of this Nazarite vow multiple different animals the best of their flock grain offerings drink offerings unleavened bread cakes of fine flour I mean I mean this was quite a, a large amount you could say it was really an offering that was quite costly that they brought at the end of this vow of dedication now, I think the purpose of this, keep in mind, they were told all these things in advance before they made this vow of separation because it was voluntary. We have to remember this. You didn't have to do this. No compulsion. This was if you wanted to do this. And I think the reason this offering was costly was because it indicated the seriousness of the worshiper, that they realized, you know what? I'm willing to pay a cost, not only to refrain from certain things, but I'm willing to pay a personal cost to seek intimacy with God. 
I'm willing to pay a personal cost of my time, of my research, whatever it takes, whatever it requires, I'm willing to bear the cost because I just want more of God. I want a deeper relationship with God. I want to live more separated unto God. I think it demonstrates too that the worshiper, therefore, when he took a Nazarite vow of separation, the worshiper was not doing it to get something from God because it's all about him giving quite a bit to God. And see, I think this is a good reminder because, again, sometimes people want to separate themselves unto God or make a dedication to God. Why? Because they want to bribe God to get something out of them. Oh, God, I'll dedicate my life to you if you'll get me out of this jam. And it's, and it's it, I want to dedicate myself to God hoping that I'm going to get like a cosmic genie opportunity out of this god if i dedicate myself to you i'll make a vow to serve you the rest of my life lord if if you'll do this and this and this and 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 we do it because we're really trying to indirectly get something from god this was not the heart of the worshiper who was making a nazarite vow the heart of a worshiper in the nazarite vow was god i don't want anything i just want more of you God, I just want more of you and I will give whatever it takes. Lord, I just want more of you. I want more of your presence, more of you in my life to experience to a deeper degree what it means to live dedicated and consecrated in closeness to you. Verse 16 says, Then the priest shall bring those things and offer his sin offering and burn offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread, and the priest shall also offer the grain offering and the drink offering. So the priest is now presenting on his behalf these things to God. Verse 18, Then the Nazarite, remember that long hair, shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So that was the sign it was over. You got a good clean shave and shall take the hair from his consecrated head, look at this, and put it on the fire to burn that symbol uh, of his consecration to God, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them on upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair and the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord and they are holy for the priest together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering and after that verse 20 notice the Nazarite may drink wine the idea there is he may resume his normal activities at this point because it wasn't wrong to refrain from these things because they were per se wrong or sinful. At this point, he could now, again, God wasn't saying, now how dare you go back to the way you once lived? Again, because this wasn't compulsory. It wasn't mandated. It was a voluntary thing to just experience deeper intimacy with God that a person could willingly do out of love because they wanted to be in deeper relationship with God or separated to serve God in some greater capacity. So at the end of this, again, it says he may go back to his regular duties, to resuming his everyday activities like the rest of the Jews among him. This is the law, verse 21, of the Nazarite 
who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Now, verse 22 through verse 27, we'll finish with this, gives to us this very special thing often referred to in the Bible as the Aaronic blessing or the high priestly blessing. Verse 22 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that is to the priests, and tell them, this is what God wanted to be told to the priests, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them. So God says, I want you as my representative to bless my people. Now, let me say right on the surface, I think it's a great reminder when any of us stand as an advocate for the Lord when you serve in any capacity as an intermediator, as a representative of Jesus to serve people on his behalf, do you know what God wants you to be? A blessing. God wants you to bless people. God doesn't want us to go around bothering people. He doesn't want us to go around burdening people by talking to them until blood's running out of their ears and they're late for everything that I get to because we have got to preach the everlasting gospel to them. And they need to hear it to be blessed. No, God says, bless people. Don't bother people. D d you know, don't bulldoze people. D don't burden people. Bless people. Bless people. And here God tells the priests who were representatives, the highest representatives of him as they stood representing the Lord to the people. Notice, this is the way you shall bless them. Say these things. Notice, they weren't even free to use their own words. God says, I want you to use these specific words. I want you to use my words, not your words. I want you to use my words, say these specific words to pronounce the ideas. They were to pronounce a blessing over the people. And many believe that this priestly pronouncement of a blessing was... Uh, maybe even done at the morning and the evening sacrifice, so at least twice a day. The idea seems to be that whenever they departed from the presence of the priest, the priest would pronounce this blessing over them. So it was something that they heard constantly. They became very familiar with it. It was continuously heard by the people. And why? Because God said, this is my heart. This is my heart for the people. And I want people to hear it constantly. So this is what he wanted reiterated in the ears and the minds and the hearts of his people to resonate within them continuously. Every time they would depart, they would hear the priest pronounce this blessing over them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So every time they would depart, this blessing would be pronounced over them. It was very simple and it was the same words. Again, it wasn't up to the priest to say, you know, I'm going to say something like that, but I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to make a little adjustment and, and kind of put my own twist on it. God said, no, I want you to say these things. This is exactly what I want you to say. And I want you to say the same thing constantly and continually so that the people will know these things well. Because God wanted this to be said because God was saying, I want you to leave this in their remembrance because it speaks about me and the kind of God that I am. 
and it will remind the people of my heart towards them. Basically, we could somewhat say, for outline's sake, there are basically six things here that God wanted his people to know. First of all, he wanted them to know that he is a blessing God. Notice the first thing God says, I want you to say, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. God wanted his people to know that he wanted to bless them, that he is a blessing God. Here's what's phenomenal. The term used there in the Hebrew literally is a term that means to get on the knee and serve. Now that's pretty astonishing. Imagine the God of all creation stooping down, getting on his knee to serve us. To bless is to benefit someone that God wants us to know. God wanted his people to know that he desires and intends to bring benefit into the lives of his people. That is his nature, that he's a blessing God. Certainly, as we think of this, getting down on the knee to serve, it, it reminds me of what ultimately Jesus did as God manifested himself in the flesh. In John 13, Jesus, it says, having realized that all authority belonged to him and he was about to depart from this world, having loved his own, he showed them the full extent of his love. And what did Jesus do? He got down on his knees and began to wash the disciples' feet and to bless them to refresh them, to minister to them. And how wonderful for us to know, how wonderful for them to always have in their minds, listen, God says, I want my people to know. I want my people to know that I'm a blessing God, that I want to bless their lives, that I want to impart benefit and help and blessing into their lives. It's my desire. It's my intention. It's part of my plan to be a blessing God to bring blessing into their life. Secondly, he wanted them to know also that he was a keeping God. The idea is that he was a God who was able to preserve his people. The idea there, the Lord bless you and keep you, is, is God's protection, God's guardianship. So God said, I want them to know that I'm a blessing God, and I also want them to know that I am a God who is able to preserve them to protect them, to guard them from anything harmful or hurtful that could come against them. God said, I'm able to be their defense. I'm able to be their shield. I'm able to come in and to shield them and protect them from the devil and from things that would hurt and destroy in their lives. And how wonderful to know the keeping power of God the preserving power of God. For you and I, from a New Testament perspective, even the fact that Jude tells us regarding Jesus that he is able to keep you and I from stumbling and present us faultless before his throne with great joy. Now, to me, I think to myself, that is astonishing what that's saying there. That there is coming a day where Jesus is going to present you before the Father in heaven faultless. That should shock you. But he is able to present you faultless before the throne of God with great joy because of his keeping power, because of the blood of his covenant and the righteousness that he supplied that as we received as a free gift, he says, I can keep you. I'll keep you to the end. Yeah, you may fumble and snub. And you, you got plenty of faults in your past and you're going to probably falter tomorrow, but I'm going to keep you and I'm going to present you faulty as you are. As faulty as you've been, I'm going to present you faultless. 
And how wonderful to know that he's a blessing God, that he's a keeping God. Thirdly, he says, let the people know that the Lord will make his face to shine upon you. He wanted them, the idea there, his people to know that he is a God who has a face that is smiling in pleasure and favor upon his people. Again, many people picture God as this grumpy old man or this angry policeman or judge that's ready to abuse his power and authority and use excessive force and write everybody tickets that don't even necessarily... And everybody many times pictures God when the Bible says that God says, no, I want you to tell them the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The idea is, is, is like the image there literally is how the face of a father lights up as they're, as they're just playing with their child, just throwing Johnny up in the air and we're enjoying little Susie and, and how their face just lights up with love toward their kid, smiling in pleasure that God wanted his people to know, look, I'm smiling upon you. I'm, I'm not angry at you. I'm not disappointed at you. I'm not upset with you or unhappy with you. When I look at you, I smile. I'm smiling upon you. Even if nobody else is smiling, when I look at you, my face lights up with a smile. I don't just love you, I actually like you. And God said, tell them that. Tell them the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Verse 25, and tell them and that he may be gracious to you. So again, that God is a gracious God. Again, the idea is that God's a forgiving God. He's a patient God. He delights to be gracious to people. He wants to be kind to people. And again, how much more is that wonderfully true in Jesus? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God says, tell them I'm a blessing God, a keeping God, that I'm smiling upon them in pleasure. Tell them that I'm a gracious God, that I want to be gracious to my people, that I want to forgive their error, and I want to do kind and giving and generous things. And he says, verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. There the idea, lift up his countenance, speaks of being attentive. How when you would speak to someone or, or call upon them for something, that they would lift up their head and stop what they're doing to pay attention. The Lord lift up his countenance. Your translation say lift up his face upon you. The idea is that if somebody's occupied doing something and somebody walks in the room, that, that they don't just keep ignoring them or, you know, we knew this today. You know, just you're talking to somebody for 10 minutes and you're you know, still doing this. But as soon as you call upon the name of the Lord, he's attentive. He lifts up his face. He pays attention. He's attentive to exactly what you need, what's going on in your life. He's always available. He joyfully turns his face in response, lifts up his face to look upon you. Lastly, he says, and tell them also, verse uh, 26, that I am a peace-giving God and give you peace. He desires his people to experience peace, to experience rest, the idea here is a quiet assurance. Again, this, this is who God wants his people to know that he is. That he is a God that's a blessing God, a keeping God, a God whose face is smiling upon his people, who's favorable towards his people, who's a gracious God toward his people, a God who's attentive to his people's needs, alert and available when we call upon him, and a God who wants to give Peace. He wants to give inner rest, sanctity in the soul, not turmoil and constant agitation. And can I say this this evening? If this blessing were true via an ironic priesthood, how much more 
is that available to you and I through the great high priest Jesus Christ who the Bible says always lives to make intercession for us. High priest humanly died. Jesus lives forever. He's the constant great high priest praying and interceding, pronouncing such blessing over our lives. He says, verse 27, and so they shall put my name on the children of Israel. The idea is God's, his name spoke of his, his ownership. Everything about him, his name spoke of, again, when I married my wife, she took my name. My children have my name. They belong to me. God says, I want you to remind them, put my name upon them, that I'm connected to them, that I belong to them. And then God says, when you pronounce this blessing over to them, he said, I'm going to respond. Because look how verse 27 ends. So you shall put my name on them and I will bless them. God says, when you pronounce prophetically this blessing, he told the priests over the children of Israel, he says, I'm going to respond to that because I told you to do it. And I will, he says, bless my people. Man, what a wonderful thing to realize that God wants to and God will bless. Let me leave you with this verse as we turn our hearts back into worship. Psalm 115 says this, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, well, maybe that's only for Israel and for Aaron. Wait a minute, read on. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. And Father, we thank you.